questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Happy Thursday. How are you doing? Just want to check in really quick. This it's, it's so okay. First of all, we are in a new space. And yes, it's not perfect yet because we haven't had any chance to like put anything on the walls or make it a little more like cozy. But we have a new podcast table and I'm sitting in a new chair and it's just so nice to have space for this so that we don't have to use our kitchen table, which is what we've been doing for the past, what, two years now? How long have we been doing podcasting? Uh, a year and a half, I guess, actually. So anyway, it's wonderful and lovely and I am just so excited to to have space. So Thank you to everybody for all your support over the years because it's because of you and all your support that I'm able to do this and able to have space. So don't think that I'm not grateful and don't recognize your role in it. And anyway, so thank you. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Um, I'm trying to think of anything going on with me or anything that I need to let you know about. We do have this Saturday is going to be the final uh, workshop day. Now, you can obviously purchase the workshop after the fact, but this is the final week of it where you'll be able to join live. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I've been, I know you've probably been hearing the little advertisement on the podcast, but I've been offering a relationship workshop and it's been running for six weeks and the sixth week will be this Saturday. And it's been just a wonderful, first of all, it's been great learnings for me to recognize like how much information I can get through to you in, in an hour's time and questions answered and all of that. But also it's just been wonderful to connect and to be able to go through these things. We've we've talked about relationship with ourselves. We talked about toxic relationships. We talked about last week was boundaries. So we talked a lot about codependency and enmeshment, what the difference is, um, how to know if we're disengaged, which is like the opposite, uh, where we're kind of opposite of enmeshment when we completely don't know what people are going through because we're not connected at all. Anyways, we just talked a lot about that stuff. And, I, um, and communication blunders, ways to navigate conflict. We've done all of that. And this week's will be how to build healthy relationships moving forward, which is, you know, kind of the culmination of all of the six weeks. So it'll be really wonderful. So if you want to join, you can pop in for 20 bucks. You can go to my website. I'll see if Sean can link this in the description, but, you know, go to katiemorton.com and you can go into my shop and you can find it there and purchase the sixth week. So anyways, I hope y'all are doing well. And I hope that those of you who've been able to attend the workshop are finding it wonderful and helpful. Now let's get into your questions. We have 10 as always, and they are wonderful. And it was funny today when I was scrolling through because I just do like a and then I pick one to try to pick those last two questions that don't necessarily have the most thumbs ups, but you know, still need to be answered and still are wonderful and important. And I had a tough time. I had to, I, this happens all the time, but I just want you guys to know that when I'm doing that, I'll read other questions because they're just like right next to that question I picked. And I'm like, oh, that one would be nice. I should add that one in. Or, oh, I should add that one too. And I'm like, whoa, 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 Katie. <laughs> we don't want podcasts to be like a gazillion hours long. And we just keep it to 10. It keeps it simple. You know what to expect. I think managing expectations and having some consistency is really therapeutic for a lot of us, especially me. So hopefully you find that as well. If not, let me know. Happy to shake it up. But anyway, just know that I see all of your questions and they're wonderful. Keep asking them. They will get picked. We'll do our best um, to get through them. Okay, let's get into that first question. Now, question number one says, hey, Katie, I recently started therapy, but I'm not sure what we're really doing. I just spend time talking about how miserable I am and not much else. I ask her what I should be bringing up in therapy, 
for me to start feeling better with my depression. And she simply says whatever I wanted to talk about. Ooh, that's not good. I've only had a few sessions, but I already feel like it's just repetitive. Please help. I like my therapist and it's taken me so long to find the right one, but I'm failing to see how this is going to help. Thanks so much for all you do. Your videos are such a comfort for me. Oh, that makes me feel so good. I'm glad I could be there for you. Um, all of your lovely comments and all the things you guys say online really make my day. I want you to know I, I read them and I, I love them because like anybody who's been on the internet, you know, I also get a lot of hate. So it's nice to get some love. Um, now, this is a great question because therapy should be... And I, I get I get hate from this from other clinicians out there, other mental health professionals who don't agree, but I've yet to have someone give me a real argument as to, you know, like a an argument that I could take seriously as to why this isn't true. Because I believe that all therapy should be structured in some form. Because you have to know what you're working towards, right? We have to have some goals and there has to be some structure to it. It does not mean there has to be homework. I'm a firm believer that therapy should involve homework, but I understand that not everybody operates like that and that is fine. But you should be working towards something. Like you don't go see even a regular doctor. I don't go see my regular doctor to not get the medicine for my cold or to not you know, get my physical done and my blood work taken so I can find out if I'm okay. Like there's a goal, right? Going to therapy, the goal is to feel better. Okay, so let's track back from that. What are our specific goals, right? Like maybe that means improve the relationship with ourselves or a family member or, you know, manage our anxiety, whatever. And so I would, I would encourage you in this case to talk to your therapist since you like them. Okay, so we like them. That's great. That's really important. And I know it's difficult to find someone we like. Talk to them. Let them know, hey, you know, I feel like this is really repetitive already and I'm just looking for some guidance and some more structured help. Is that something you can offer me? Now, the reason that I want you to phrase it that way, like, is that something you can offer me is because some therapists might say, oh, that's just not the way I operate. And at that point, you have to decide whether the fact that you like this therapist is enough. And if you continue just talking without much, I don't even understand what like, I don't really understand how therapists like this work. So that's my struggle. And I think that's why people are like, you just don't, you know, they don't always agree with me, which is fine. That's fair. Everybody has their own view and that is, it's perfectly okay. But to feel like it's just repetitive and you're not going anywhere and you're not getting any help and you just talk about how miserable you are. That's not, I know through research, that's not going to make you feel better. Like you're, you're experiencing what our research shows, which is that just talking it out without any structure, support or tools isn't going to be enough. It, it's part, it helps for some people. It's like 30 or 40% efficacy, which I guess you could say is decent, but I would say is not. Um, but most people like 60%, 70% need something more. And so bringing it up and just saying like, Hey, I think I need something more. I need more structure or more tools or things to try outside of therapy versus just venting and see what they say. Because if they will not offer that, you have to decide whether you need that in order to get better or if you think what you're doing could be beneficial to you, which is up to you. It's your choice. It's your treatment. It's your therapy. So you can make the best decision for you um, because I'm also, I'm with you. I'm failing to see how that's going to help. But again, not everybody agrees with me and I as a CBT and DBT based therapist, meaning uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, I'm much more directive. I am much more homework based, you know, tools, techniques, 
resource building. That's just how I operate because I want you to have things to do when you're not with me because you're only seeing me, you know, one or two hours a week and then you're gone. So anyway, bring it up. See what the therapist says. If they're open to it, they will adjust. If they push it off to you because some therapists want you to do equal amounts of work and they can say, well, what, what are you hoping for? You can maybe pick out a workbook or ask, ask my community. And even I have an Amazon shop, amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton with a lot of workbooks that I personally use. So you could pick one in there and be like, I'd like to go through this workbook that could help guide it a little bit for you. Um, but yeah, hopefully they will adjust and you will get the support that you need. Now there were comments after this question and one of them says, I'm in a similar situation. I've seen a, a couple therapists and doctors over the past seven years, but therapy isn't getting me anywhere. I feel like nobody understands me. At this point, I'm pretty sure there's a root problem, maybe PTSD or ASD. So PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder and ASD stands for autism spectrum disorder. I feel so different to everybody else and nobody understands me and I don't know what to do anymore. I don't want to be stuck here forever, but therapy doesn't seem to be working. Any help would be welcome. I would encourage you maybe to, since you've seen a couple of therapists and doctors and it seems like nobody understands, it could behoove you to find a psychologist who does testing and assessment. That's what we call it. When someone, that's usually primarily what they do. And yes, it might cost you, but most insurances cover testing within reason. Um, and even if they don't cover it, these aren't like thousands of dollars. So ask before you go to make sure you can afford it. Just throwing that out there. But getting some testing done, it, it takes time and it's annoying. And of course, testing sucks because you got to like, it's like a test. You're, you're filling out paperwork. But the good news is you have all the right answers because it's just figuring out what's what's happening with you. That might help figure out if we have ASD or not. Because if we do, or even PTSD, like, you know, finding out what testing they offer and checking the boxes of the testing that you want to get done could ensure that we get proper diagnosis. And then we're able to find a specialist to work with like to work on what we need to. But if if that's not possible, so that's one option, getting testing and assessment so we can figure out what it is we're struggling with so we can get the support that we need. The second is that maybe we try to find a specialist for the things we're suspicious about because there's nothing wrong. Like, I don't know if you guys have watched my video about self-diagnosis and maybe I should redo it just so it's like a fresher video. Some people are funny about that. Like, you need to redo it. And I'm like, there's not much new to say, but I can say it again. Um, but my thoughts on self-diagnosis are that it's helpful because we know our symptoms best and it can help us find the right help. However, without a clinician's background, like all the studying and stuff that I had to do, not to mention like, you know, people who are doctors, like psychiatrists or psychologists and other, just other clinicians, social workers, people out there in the world, um, you want them, you want to check in with them because there may be some symptoms you're missing because you don't know that those are different or that those aren't quote unquote normal for other people, right? And so we, we want to have our experience with their expertise. That's what I used to always say, if you guys remember, like with my expertise and your experience, we work together towards a healthy mind and healthy body. It's that kind of thing. So having that information is helpful and then bouncing it off of a, uh, you know, a licensed professional will ensure we get properly diagnosed. Um, so doing, doing that um, is good. And what I was getting at is like, if you have your own self-diagnosis, like you think it's ASD, can we find someone who specializes in that in our area? Can we ask around? Can we, when we make calls to see a different therapist, can we ask if they treat, you know, autism or PTSD? Can we ask them about that? I would encourage you to do that kind of work because I find 
when we feel like no one's understanding us, to me, it, it's like we might be asking for help from the wrong people. Now, that's not our fault. It's just that's just not the good recipe, right? We have to find a good fit. When we see a therapist and we continue to see them, we should feel like they get us, right? That's what we're kind of going for. It doesn't mean they understand everything. We should, we'll have to explain our, you know, particular things that we think and do and why and all that. But overall, we should feel like it's pretty easy for them to understand us. And we feel like we're getting some tools that are helpful. And so I know it's frustrating to have to see a bunch of different therapists and doctors till you find the right fit, but maybe looking for specialists for the things that you think you have, like PTSD and ASD, will fix that and will ensure that the next time you try, it is someone who can really help you, who gets what you're going through. So yeah. And also, the, I, I don't have any problem with people picking up workbooks and stuff on the issues they think they're struggling with and trying that out on your own a little first and then going into therapy. Like there's nothing wrong with that either. And the final comment on this question was, Katie, I would like to go into counseling, but can't because of my situations and have been legal, legally advised not to for my protection, which I, that's very interesting. But what if you started counseling but cannot be allowed to discuss it because it's too taboo or illegal to discuss in counseling? Now, the only things that would be, you know, deemed illegal to discuss in counseling, and this is if you're over 18, would be that you were going to kill somebody, like you were homicidal, meaning you want to kill somebody, or you're suicidal, you want to hurt yourself, right? And so if any of that is going on. It's not that it's illegal to talk about in therapy, but there's going to be some confidentiality issues. Um, only other thing I could possibly think of is if there's a legal case against you or someone you love and you don't want to get your therapist involved. But even then, like your therapist, they'd get a court order. It's not very likely they'd bring them in. I just can't imagine I can't see a situation where it's illegal to talk about something in counseling because of confidentiality. And sure, I can be, uh, I can get, they can get a court order and force me to come to a court and share certain things. But even then, it's so limited what I can share around, you know, with regard to the case and with regard to confidentiality. And usually therapists will share the bare minimum of what they need to like, oh, this, you know, like, let's say usually you go to court on your client's behalf, but sometimes they'll have you come to be like, yeah, they're depressed. And, and they're like, that's why they did such and such. I don't even know. Um, the only time I've had, I've had some friends that have to do that. And it's usually like in divorce proceedings or child abuse cases. And, you know, we share only what's per what pertains to that case. So I just cannot imagine a situation where you wouldn't talk to them. And I said, it says you legally advise not to for your protection. I, I, I don't know. I'm having a tough time with this question because it there aren't many situations where this is actually relevant. And I think it's completely okay when you go into therapy to ask about confidentiality and what, what they could share and why and how that works and, and ask about it until you you understand it. Because again, it's your privacy, it's your confidentiality. And so asking them about it, I think would be helpful because I would really, if you're needing support and you want to go, go do it. It's really helpful. And things being too taboo, this is, I know you're not going to believe me and I've been saying this for years, but you can't shock a therapist. Like I'm telling you, the things that I have heard and seen over my years blow your mind. So just know that nothing is too taboo. Um, I don't get shocked easily. There's a lot of things that we've I've seen over the years and a lot of things that, you know, 
um, we, I've worked on with my patients and there's no room for judgment. Nothing's taboo. Um, it, it's just life and we're just there to support you. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. Now that says, Hey Katie, how are you doing? Do you still see clients for therapy or have you shifted entirely to YouTube? If so, do you plan on returning to clinical work? This is a great question and I don't have a direct answer. But let's start with the beginning. How am I doing? I'm actually doing really well. Um, having the space and finally feeling settled is amazing, you guys. I cannot tell you how. I honestly, not to be dramatic, but I feel like staying in that apartment, as much as I loved Santa Monica, because I still love Santa Monica, but it was like killing me, I think. It was like stressing me out. And I, we were so packed to the gills. We, we had just no room. And I didn't realize how important that was for my own mental health. So, hey, sometimes... You know, just because I know better, guys, doesn't mean I do better. And I, you know, it, fortunately, I feel very fortunate that Sean and I were able to purchase a home. I know that's not a reality for a lot of people, but I was to the point where I was tempted to even move back home for more space. It was so bad. You know, it's just so uncomfortable. And so it's been really great the, to be out and I feel so good. And then Sean and I's anniversary is coming up in July and I'm going to take a week off. Yay. Have a little vacation. So, um, yeah, doing really well. Thanks for asking. Now, the second question, or the second and third, do I still see clients? Yes, I have two. That's all I have. It's the lowest amount I've ever had in my entire career. And it's all virtual, obviously. And they are transitioning over because I'm out of California. Now, I'm still holding my license in California and will continue to. I don't want to lose it and have to retake that exam if Sean and I, for some reason, decide to move back there. Um, so... I technically can still treat patients, but because I'm not there, you know, they give you some time, like some leeway, a few months. I think it's like six months or something is like what my lawyer had told me to transition them over, but they're already seeing someone else. And so it's kind of like I'm seeing them and then we're going to trickle off and they're going to, they can check in with me as all my patients. I always am open. I haven't like, I don't ever cut people off. Um, and so they will do that. And so at that point, I will have shifted. It'd probably be in like a month or two here, but I will have shifted entirely to just YouTube uh, speaking engagements, things like that, which is weird. And I'm I'm kind of grieving that right now, I guess. It's like a weird, it's just a weird thing. Never thought I would do this. And so then onto the other question, do I plan on returning to clinical work? Well, if I do, I have to get licensed in the state of Texas, which I've looked into a little bit. And um, you know, requested some information and it, I have to retake my tests and I don't think I have to do any more um, observed clinical hours. I'm not sure. It doesn't look like it. But anyway, I haven't decided yet. I'm at the point where I feel like I just kind of want to get settled here and then I'll decide that. But I'll keep you guys posted. Um, but right now, yeah, it's it's weird. I'm in a, in a flux and a and it, it is tricky. Anybody who's ever had a license and has moved states, you know how tricky it is. And it can take us a while to, because even if I do try to sign up to take the exam, it's like months out. And then I, ha well, I have to study. And then I have to take the exam. And then I have to wait another month and take the second part of the exam. And then I have to wait to receive my license, which can take a little while. So even I feel like in a perfect world, it'd probably be at least six months out. Um, but yeah, I haven't quite decided. I don't know. It's weird. I'm just trying to allow myself to feel sad about leaving my office in Santa Monica. I had the office for a while and I love the office. Um, and my patients. Yeah, it's, just, it's been 
like as the transition happened to moving and all that, like it was definitely, there's definitely been a lot of grief as, as well as excitement, you know, it's not all bad, but I can just, if this helps anybody who feels like they can't, I can feel sad and excited at the same time. I can have a lot of different emotions running. And so, yeah, I'll keep you posted. Okay. Question number three says, hi, Katie. I hope you're well. I've been struggling with overthinking for quite a while now. I have really obsessive intrusive thoughts that are centered around my thought patterns. I have these obsessive thoughts about the way I'm thinking, constantly trying to overanalyze. They feel out of my control. And then, and they start the second that I wake up. Could this be OCD? Yes, 100%. I try and use thought stopping techniques, but they just won't stop. Yeah, when we have OCD, especially pure OCD, where it's like thought driven, stop thought stopping techniques are just not enough. Also, I've noticed when I get really flooded with an emotion, I zone out and just stare. Is this dissociation? Could be. I never experience floating out of my body, but everything does go blank and I can't speak. Thank you. Lots of love from the UK. Now there was a question below this about pure O, but let's get into this first. So overthinking is, there's so many different terms that we can use to describe those obsessive intrusive thoughts. One of those is worrying. I'm a, I'm a real worrier. Another is overthinking. Another is um, I have a tough time letting certain thoughts go. Like people have all sorts of different ways that they talk about it. But this does to me sound like OCD because of the fact that they start immediately when you get up and they like take over your brain. And most of your brain space is spent over analyzing and really thinking through these things over and over and over and over and it becomes obsessive. And so I would encourage you to see a therapist who specializes in OCD. That's honestly the best. If you live in a more rural community, maybe try online like BetterHelp or Talkspace. They they are great resources so you can find specialists no matter where you live. Um, or at least someone who specializes in anxiety treatment because if you didn't realize OCD is kind of part of that anxiety disorder umbrella and they most likely will be able to help you as well. Um, and the thought stopping techniques when when we have OCD, it, it can assist for a bit, but it's almost like putting a bandaid on a broken bone. It's just not quite enough and we need a little bit more support. And so really um, a lot of the techniques that they'll use when it comes to treatment of OCD, unfortunately, is a lot of like exposure therapy, meaning we're going to expose ourselves to the thing that maybe makes our intrusive thoughts worse or, um, and I know this doesn't, this person's definitely more pure oaks. It's like mainly thought-based or if there's something that causes the obsession, let's say like, I have to keep going back and doing this certain thing, like checking, right? I have to check the door five times or seven times or whatever to make sure that I did lock it or check the stove or, you know, all sorts. There's a, a number of things we have to check could be endless. But um, in order to kind of push us out of it, the cool thing about OCD, I mean, cool is a strong word because it's really hard. It's really hard work, but it does work is to have us do the thing, initiate that obsession and then not do the compulsion. So even though my brain is like, you got to check that door, that door might not be locked. You need to check it. You need to check it. If you don't, someone's going to break in, right? We all know that like part of OCD is like, if you don't do that thing, you worry something horrible is going to happen. So you're like, someone's going to break in and kill me or rob me or whatever. But if I hold and I don't check it, or I only check it once, or, you know, we, there's like different levels as you kind of go through it, I'll realize that nothing bad happened. And then I've proven to my brain that that doesn't, that, that, I slowly prove it. It takes more than just one go, by the way, but that 
I don't have to do that compulsion. Like nothing bad is going to happen. I've proved that that my worry thought wasn't correct. Does that make sense? And so we slowly push that out and prove to ourselves that we're okay. And so then we don't have to do those things. Now, when it comes to pure O, which if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, when it's pure O OCD, it means that, and it's truly, it's not even actually pure O, O being the obsessions. So it's the thoughts, right? It's that like, oh, if I don't check the door, someone's going to come in. Oh my God. Oh my God. They're going to come and rob me, blah, blah, blah. That's the obsession. The compulsion is the action that we take. Now they call it pure O because the actions that we take are actually mental actions. So, and I don't know what that would be for the person who asked this question because they didn't really say, but I would assume that part of your compulsion is this overthinking. It's like the analyzing that we allow to run. Well, no, I need to keep thinking about this. I need to keep figuring this out or I need to think it through one more time. That's the compulsion. That's the checking or the hand washing, which people have always said is OCD, but hand washing isn't always like cleanliness is not part of OCD all the time. So just throwing that out there. But pure O is like the compulsions are done in our head. There's still compulsions. It's still OCD, but it's it's mainly thought based. And so for you, the thing would the push would be for you to um, find a way. And this would be why you need to see a specialist. I do not specialize in OCD, but I can give you some places to start. Is that when you have that urge to, oh, I'm going to keep analyzing this. I think because yours is thought based, it would behoove you to have a couple. Watch my video, 25 coping skills. You just go down, get on YouTube, Katie Morton, 25 coping skills, it'll pop up. And I would encourage you to um, pick a couple processing coping skills, meaning uh, impulse log would be one that I would put out there because the impulse is to overthink. And then another might just be to journal about what's coming up for you or talk to a friend about it or a therapist. But then I want you to distract because distraction can work really well when when we're dealing with a lot of uh, unhelpful thoughts because distraction pulls our brain in another direction, makes us do something else. So if you can even distract doing like a crossword or Sudoku or talking to a friend, those are, you know, I know talking to friends like processing, but it's also a distraction, but it could be trying out a new workout thing or learning music or, you know, any number of things that can distract painting your nails. You know, we can do things around the house to keep our mind busy so that we don't go in, don't get caught up into that cycle again. Um, And then the last little bit of this, when you really get flooded with an emotion, you zone out and just stare. That can be dissociation. I like to think of dissociation kind of on a spectrum. I know I've talked about this in other videos, but it's, it can start out as kind of like a space out but we were still able to maybe form a memory of that time or we know what was being said. We're just like, we zone all the way to what is really dissociative identity disorder, which is when we're so removed from self, we create other personalities that are all parts of us to help us manage the overwhelm or the trauma that we are dealing with. And so it sounds like when you get overwhelmed, you do dissociate in that space out Maybe even, I don't know if you have any maladaptive daydreaming. I have a video about that as well. But all of that, not everybody feels like they float above their body. Some people just feel like spaced out from themselves. Like it's, and it's hard to come back and get back into your uh, body and brain and be present. So that could definitely be what's happening. Again, because dissociation is is like a, it's ten, it ends up being an unhealthy coping skill because we're not present and we can't make memories and we're not really aware of what we're doing with our body can be dangerous, but in the moment it's protective, right? It's a coping mechanism. Our brain's like, it's just too much. Wow. It pulls the ripcord and sends us out so that we can get through it. Okay. Now let's get into the comment that was below this question. This question says, Katie, how can you tell the difference between pure O intrusive thoughts 
PTSD intrusive thoughts or any other intrusive thoughts. I thought it was pure O at first as I had a lot of OCD symptoms as a child, but I was not disturbed by my thoughts. That's really helpful. And we'll get into that. Do I have PTSD? I do have PTSD, but my thoughts aren't always around my childhood trauma in the sense that they're not flashbacks. They distract me when I become anxious. Thank you. Interesting. Okay. So the first thing that's important to remember is that OCD is ego dystonic, meaning that we don't like it. It doesn't feel good. It's like um, they're against what we believe or the things that we want. And that's the disturbing part. Like a lot of OCD thoughts, especially intrusive thoughts will be like, you just jump off that bridge and kill yourself or, oh, I could just, so, I could just hit that person with my car, right? They're usually, they tend to be violent or sexual in nature and they're very disturbing. And we can go down a shame spiral of like, why did my brain come up with this? It's not you. It's just your OCD acting up and that's what it does. So that's how we know it's OCD when we, we just don't like it. It's, it's dystonic or like, ugh. or it's uncomfortable. We're like, I don't want to have to keep checking. Like a lot of my patients who've had OCD over the years will talk about how they felt like a slave to it. Like, oh, I have to go in and do this another time. And like, I have to, like, it's just, it's so frustrating and then get really angry, but they still have to do it, you know? Um, and it just feels like, I don't know, like you're pulled against your will to doing things. Now, ego syntonic on the other hand is when, you know, uh, we, we don't mind it. Like it's actually in line with who we believe we are and what we want to do. So there can be, you know, there can be things that within the mental health space where we can, they can feel very good, like in line with our ego or who we think we are, if that, if that makes sense. Okay. So anyways, the fact that they do not disturb this person, um, wonders if it's actually, you know, PTSD intrusive thoughts or pure O and how do, how do we know what's the difference? So pure O intrusive thoughts and OCD as a whole, again, is ego dystonic. We don't like it. Um, it feels, it just, it's uncomfortable, but we don't know how else to feel comfortable, if that makes sense. Because when we, when we have OCD doing the compulsions and all of that is actually what calms us down. And so even though I'm telling you, it's like uncomfortable, we don't want to do it. It's the only way we know how to soothe our system. Okay. So that's how we know if it's OCD. And if you have OCD out there and you're like, Katie, you're missing a few points, feel free to leave those in the comments. You know me, I don't have any ego about it. The more we know, and the more we learn together, the better. So that's like OCD type things. Then when it comes to PTSD, I don't really call them intrusive thoughts as much as I would call them flashbacks. Now, we can have intrusive thoughts. Like if your intrusive thoughts are all surrounding your PTSD and they are all based in that, because it says they aren't always, this person asked the question, so they aren't always based around that. But if you are out there and yours are that way, then I, I would think it's more PTSD related. It's more related to how your brain is trying to process the trauma. Um, and so I'm not for th that's just how I tease it out. Like, what's the subject matter? Do we are they super uncomfortable? Is it taking up most of our time? Does it take us like a long time to do things because we have to, you know, go through all these thought patterns or, um, you know, think things through a certain amount of times, like we're we not able to make decisions, you know, those are things that I would ask. And so, but for this, it says I, um, I do have PTSD, but my thoughts aren't always around my childhood trauma. And they distract me when I become anxious. So Really, I I believe that these kinds of intrusive thoughts that you're experiencing probably are adaptive in the fact that when you start to feel overwhelmed, they happen. And that could be, it's most likely some way linked to your PTSD. It does not sound like pure OCD, but I'd have to, I'd have to know more. I guess 
just for your reference, and maybe this will help you answer it on your own, is that the way to tell the difference is if they're just, like I said earlier, like if they're uncomfortable and we don't like it, it's ego dystonic, right? Doesn't feel good, takes up a lot of our time. We feel like a slave to those thoughts and the urges to whatever, overthink, worry, blah, blah. Or if it's PTSD, then it's always about the trauma or something that reminds us of the trauma. Like a lot of my patients, and I'm actually working on a video right now about like trauma triggers and how we can be triggered and not realize it kind of thing. But if we actually take the time to think back, we know how it was linked. Like, oh, that smell reminds me of this or it was that sound and that reminded me of this time or whatever, right? It, it's all surrounding the trauma. So if you can kind of tease out what the thoughts are about or when they occur most, then you could probably tell me whether it's related to your PTSD and it's a symptom of that or whether it is OCD related. I hope that helps. I know it's kind of a little, it's a little tricky to tell, huh? But hopefully that clears it up a little. Okay, let's move on to question number four. And that question is, hi, Katie, what does being fully recovered from trauma look like? And how do you know if you're there? Can you answer this question for complex trauma too, if the answer is any different? Of course. It says, thanks for all you do. So being fully recovered from trauma is something that I was talking to my friend, um, my friend, Dr. Alexa Altman. She's a psychologist and trauma specialist. And I really liked the way she talked about it. So she talks about recovery in the way that obviously nothing's ever, it's not always perfect. And we can still be triggered and have certain things that remind us of the trauma and and cause us to feel, cause us to just be reminded is really what it is. But recovery is when those reminders or even just talking about the trauma isn't emotionally charged. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't be like, yeah, it was really sad. And even talking about it makes me sad. We, we can feel that, but it's not a visceral response. Talking about it doesn't cause us to dissociate. It doesn't cause me to have body memories. I don't have flashbacks. I don't become emotionally overwhelmed. Obviously, when hard things happen to us, we can still feel them and we can still recognize that it was horrible, but it's not debilitating. It doesn't like shake us so that we can't go throughout the rest of our day or even that conversation. And so it's more about the way that it feels in your body and the emotional response. It's about that emotional charge. Now, this doesn't really make, it doesn't matter if it is complex trauma or not. If, you, if you're new out there and you don't know the difference, um, PTSD and CPTSD or complex PTSD differ because uh, those with CPTSD have repeated traumas. And the main differentiation, uh, at least from my experience, is that those with CPTSD struggle also with like more of the emotion regulation component and their relationships in general. Now, it also affects us with PTSD, but it's a little bit greater and just a little bit different when it comes to complex PTSD. So the recovery still looks the same. It's that emotional charge. It's that ability to, um, I don't know, go into a crowd and have someone touch us from behind to move around us and not jump and to tell someone about the situation and what happened and not break down into tears or dissociate. And I know it feels like that's so far away for a lot of us and it feels really overwhelming. But trust me when I tell you that it's truly possible and you can get there, we just have to stay the course, get the support that we need. There's no shame in taking time off to go to treatment. There's no shame in seeing a therapist multiple times a week. Whatever you need, uh, groups, you know, getting all the support that you need so that you can 
get yourself to a place where you have tools and techniques and resources to help you be you and not get completely like shaken to the core by, you know, the trauma memories. And also Alexa told me something really interesting that, that you don't always have to like work through all of the trauma memories because some of the memories just don't exist, but you, you should take the time or you will need to work through how it feels in your body. So even if you're like, I don't know, I was like a baby or I was a child. I don't remember very much, but I feel it. It's working on that feeling. It's processing through that in your body, which is why somatic experiencing, which is a style of therapy where you like move the energy out and move your body as part of your healing. That's why it's so beneficial and so healing for a lot of people. Make sense? I hope so. Okay. Now there was a comment below this one as well and it said, yes. So the same, like that question. And can we ever get over it completely? Yes. For example, if we have a disability and have had to go under had to undergo a lot of surgeries. Can you ever heal, heal from the trauma? 100%. You definitely can. Again, it's just finding that connection with a therapist and working to process through how the trauma shows up for you and finding ways to, to manage as we move through it, as we allow for that movement in our body to take place, or as we allow for those conversations to be had, or um, as we start putting, you know, some language to the different parts of ourselves that have developed because of the trauma, like, Yes, it does get better. We can fully recover. And even it doesn't really matter the type of therapy, abuse or surgeries or any of that. Um, yes, you can. Okay, let's move into question number five. It says, how would one start talking about trauma? So much trauma this uh, week. Uh, how would one start talking about trauma with a new therapist? There's just this imaginary boundary that I can't cross. Even if I write it down, I don't show them. This is a wonderful question. And the truth about this is that you don't have to tell them right up front. I know a lot of, uh, maybe it's, it's probably my fault. Like I've probably said something to make you assume that you have to tell them right away. We might not be able to, it might be too overwhelming. I can't tell you how many patients I've been seeing for, I don't know, six months or a year. And then they're like, oh yeah, by the way, like, you know, my uncle sexually abused me from ages six to nine, and I just don't really talk to people about it. And then they'll leave. Okay, bye. It's one of those doorknob confessions. They're like, great session, BT dub, this happened, and they leave. And you're like, oh, okay. And I take notes and I bring it up next time. So there is no certain timeline, like you have to mention it. The thing that I would encourage you to mention is how you're feeling, what's happening, what symptoms are you experiencing right now? Why? Obviously, you know, you're into therapy, you got into therapy because of the trauma, but it's not, that's, that's the reason you already know that, but you don't have to tell them right away. If you're not ready, you can tell them like, what are the symptoms that are bothering you? Is it that you're extra jumpy around people or you can't, you struggle to socialize or do you have nightmares? Is it hard to sleep? Do you feel super anxious or depressed? Let's talk about those symptoms. Are those things we could bring up? Because sometimes the the root of it and the meat of the issue is too, it's too deep. It, it makes us feel too vulnerable to share right away. So we can share some of these ancillary issues, these other symptoms that are coming up and work on those until we feel able to work on the main part. Do you know what I mean? You don't have to do it right away. And someone also said, um, and this was a great comment, I loved this, said that they pay their therapist via Venmo and mine, I paid mine via Venmo, my one in California um, as well. And she said in the notes, I would put, hey, I wrote a letter, remind me to, to read it to you or give it to you next session. So you're holding yourself accountable and then the therapist will bring it up 
So you don't actually even have to read it, uh, remember to give it to them or do it in the moment. You can kind of have them remind you and push you to do it. And that had that had helped them get that stuff out. So that's just another another cool way. Now the comment below this says, can you when you can you when you meet any new um, counselor, just be like, quote, I have boundaries and my privacy and what I want to tell you or not. If I do not feel like telling you past things that are too private to discuss, that's my right. And yeah, of course. I mean, that's always your right. I, I feel like you don't even have to say that. Um, in therapy, you get to decide or choose, I guess, what you want to share, what you don't, what things are okay for you to tell a stranger and not. And you can keep things private if you want. I will throw this in there just because I have to. I feel the need to. Is that, of course, you don't have to share anything if you don't want to. But I, but if we don't, then they can't help us with it. Just FYI. Because if I don't know something's going on and you're not telling me about it, then I'm going to assume it's fine because you told me it's fine. And it's not. So I'm just throwing that out there that like in order to work on something and for it to get better, we do need to uh, talk about it and bring it up. But of course, at your own pace. No rush. Moving on to question number six it says, hi, Katie, why do I always focus on the end of things? I'm getting treatment for anxiety, depression, and social anxiety right now. And I am already scared of it ending because I feel like it's helping me a lot. That's so interesting. It's like the, I like this, so I don't want it to end automatically jump to the ending. I'm still scared though, that I will get worse again and fall into a hole after I go back home. How can I learn to stay in the present moment more and not always fear everything will end? It's kind of ironic that you're getting treatment for anxiety. I mean, as well as depression and social anxiety, but that's an anxious brain right there. And I would bring this up in your treatment. I would bring it up with them to let them know that like, hey, why do I do this? Because what it actually is, it's those, it's those out of control worry thoughts. And I'm wondering if maybe medication could be helpful. I'm not a doctor, but, you know, talk to your psychiatrist and see if that's possible. Because sometimes when we are struggling so much with these worry thoughts, we can't even get out of them to even think in another way or to challenge them or to do the work that we're trying to do in treatment. You know, sometimes medication can take that edge off so that we can get our head above water, the water being the symptoms, so that we can work on it. And I, I wonder if that would be, but like benefit you. But I think that those are definitely worry thoughts. And just like just reeks of worry. Like, you know, I'm getting treatment. I'm already scared it's going to end. Ooh, what's going to happen if it ends? And also I'm scared if it gets worse, I'll fall into a hole. The worry, 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 worry. Anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. Um, I will be posting my new anxiety workbook soon, probably in the next week or two. So stay tuned for that if that could be helpful. But bring that up. It's definitely anxious thinking. I wonder if medication or other, maybe we need other tools and resources. Talk to your team. There can be things like, Thought-stopping techniques, distraction techniques, um, playing it out till the end. When it comes to cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, we do a lot of those things to kind of assuage the anxiety because otherwise it runs away, right? It just runs away with itself and can, um, yeah, make it so that we can't even enjoy the present moment or get out of it what we need to get out of it. So, yeah. Give those things a go, talk to them, let them know it does get better. And there was a comment on this says, as an add-on, I seem to hold on to mental illness and struggles because of this, as it has become part of my identity. Like we're afraid to let go of it because um, who are we without it? And and that's very, very common. I think um, 
I think a lot of us struggle with identity and struggle with, you know, um, maybe figuring out who we are without our, our mental illness. And the truth is, I don't really, I don't really push people to let go of things or to feel like they have to know uh, who they are without it because that will come in due time. But again, it's this, ang- it's this anxious thought cycle. Cause if back to the, this add on question is like, if the fear is that everything will end and because everything will end, I might as well just keep my mental illness and struggles because like, they're always going to be there and this treatment's going to come to an end. That's a very, that's not only like an anxious way of thinking. Cause, Oh my God, I worry. What if it ends? What if it ends? But it's also kind of like a not self-fulfilling prophecy, but in a way you're like sabotaging your treatment because you're assuming that when it ends, you won't be, you won't know who you are. You're making a lot of assumptions that aren't really healthy and helpful. And so what I would encourage you to do is to start journaling about this, like the reasons that you're holding on to your mental illness and struggles, what your thoughts are about it. And then, you know, be a detective or, or check your facts, however you want to verbalize it around the reasons that support what you're thinking and your thought process and your worries, and also the things that kind of go against it. Like, do we have anything to prove that that's not true? Because the truth about it for me, just from reading this, I'm like, okay, so if you fear everything is going to end, and so you always focus on the end of things, and so you feel like getting treatment and feeling better just isn't worth it because my mental illness will be there, this will end, and you know, you're already like sabotaging it. My, my guess would be, that you have no evidence to really support that other than the fact that you still have a mental illness and struggles, but spoilers haven't really worked on it. Right. And then if we look at evidence to support the fact that it gets better because we've never given it a shot, we could be like, well, I don't have any evidence to support that. Well, I'm giving you some right now. Research shows that with medication and therapy, you can look up, honestly, you could actually do detective work and find all the research to support therapy and medication and how together they give us the best result and how effective it is. And, you know, how some of the treatments for anxiety work and how, you know, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy is super beneficial and how tracking our thoughts and challenging them can change the way we think and act and just live our life. Um, Yeah, those are your facts. I encourage you to check your facts. And that got a ton of thumbs up. Some people were like, yes, me too, that they also hold on to their mental health because they always, um, you know, are scared it's going to get worse again. And then, you know, how can I, it's just going to end and things are going to get bad. Um, it's yeah, checking those thoughts, checking your facts about those thoughts and challenging them. Then it gets into like bridge statement land where maybe we can't think positively about this or like challenge the thought with a complete opposite thought. Cause that doesn't really work for many of us anyway. But is it possible to say, you know, maybe I'm open to possibly maybe if I did find a therapist I liked, then things maybe could get better. I'm open to the, the thought that maybe, maybe that's possible, right? Those are the bridge statements. We got to work, work it um, a little ways from the unhealthy stuff into the more healthy and, and positive thinking, but it takes time to get there. And we have to build that bridge. Okay. Um, okay. Now, now one more question, a related question. I'm afraid to even start therapy because of the fear of it ending without having resolved anything man, these worry thoughts, they're killing us guys. I've been in therapy a couple times before, but it ended after just a few sessions due to it being far away or due to health coverage limits. I think those aren't issues for me anymore, but I'm still afraid it will end too soon if I start again. Again, check your facts, call your health insurance, 
Um, find someone who's close, right? If we can find someone who's close and that our health insurance, we know they're going to cover X amount of sessions and we know we've got those in the bag or we have a, that, a deductible and once we've met that, we're free and clear and we can do it. And we know we can afford to pay that deductible. You know, do your research, check your facts and prepare yourself so that it won't end like that again. Because I've been that, in that situation too where I couldn't um, I couldn't afford one of the therapists I saw. Josie was her name and I really liked her, but I couldn't afford her. And she, her sliding scale was like only like $25 less or $50 less, which might feel like a lot to some people, but that still didn't bring it into a range that was reasonable for me. It was still like a hundred and something dollars and I was a poor student. So check your facts, prepare yourself, do some work to set yourself up for success and then, you know, go for it. Because again, it's those worry thoughts. It's the, it, it, those are thoughts that don't have facts or just maybes. They live in like, it could be bad. Oh, well, what if it could be good, you know? Um, and so do your homework to prepare so that you know the two main reasons it's ended before will not happen. And then just got to take the leap. Because if we check those facts and we say, well, last time's it, the last time it ended because of this and the time before that ended because of that, and those things are not relevant anymore, well, then I'm here to tell you, you don't have any other reasons to not go, right? We've already done it. We've figured it out. We fixed the problems and we're starting again. I know it's hard, but um, anxiety, man, it gets a hold of our thoughts and we have to recognize them and start checking them and trying to make them at least a little bit more balanced. Okay. Moving on to question number seven. It says, hey, hey, back to you. Congrats on your move. Thank you so much. My question is, how do you give yourself closure from feelings of grief? This week, I lost my therapist of 18 months. She resigned from her job. Ugh, I lost one to her retiring. It was terrible. I don't know if I'll ever see her again. And I don't see myself working with another therapist because our work wasn't done. That's interesting. That's an interesting way to say that. I don't see myself working with another therapist because our work wasn't done. Maybe you meant it was done. I've spent the month since she announced that she was leaving, crying from sadness, angry at myself and at her, and emotionally withdrawing or repressing. I know the sadness, anger, repression cycle isn't healthy, so I want to know how to give myself closure. What tips do you have for premature therapy termination, grief, and processing through these kinds of feelings in general? Now, first is talking about it in therapy as much as you can. And my question for you, because this feels like it might be a little bit more than just therapy termination. I, I think it might be poking a button of something that's happened to you in the past. And I would just want you to maybe journal or be curious and spend some time thinking about what could, what else could be connected to this? What could be causing this, right? We're feeling so we're this cycle of like sadness, anger, repression, sadness, anger, repression. We're kind of like around and around and around. Why? Have we ever felt this way before? Has there ever been a time where someone left us? Is this attachment based? Is that something that's happening? Like, I'm, I'm very curious about it. Where is this coming from? Because the one thing about, um, and I don't want any judgment here. I know this word is used as a way to judge and I don't mean it that way. But when we overreact, which is really just a way of explaining when our reaction to something that's happening in our life is is like larger than what the situation warrants happens to us all the time, right? I, when I am, haven't eaten in a while and I'm hungry and Sean asked me another question about work, will overreact to that question because I'm hungry, right? So there's always these reasons. Overreaction doesn't mean that we don't feel the way we feel. It just means that the reaction is greater than the situation warrants. So your therapist is leaving. Yes, you can feel sad. You can feel mad. You can feel all of these things. 
somewhat maybe abandoned. But because we're feeling all that and it's very intense and it's hard to get through, this is an overreaction, which is evidence that there's something deeper going on, that this isn't, it's not just this situation. Like in my very, like totally different, but not as important of an example of like me being hungry slash hangry. Therefore, you know, I'm going to overreact to anything being asked of me because I need to get food instead, right? But in this situation, because I'm doing this and I'm overreacting this way, what does that tell me about it? What other situations in my life is this reminding me of? Where's this coming from, right? What What is my food that I need to get? Like, what is it that I can do to heal? Or what is it I need to dig into so that I don't have this intense reaction? And I know there's a lot of judgment around stuff like that. And we can think like, what well, I should just be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all should just be fine, but none of us are. It, it requires a little more research, a little more work. We, we're complex creatures. We have a lot going on and it can be difficult for us to recognize why it's happening and how we overcome it. So be kind to yourself. This is great information. As a therapist, not that I love this stuff because I don't want anybody feeling bad, but I love to get information like this because then it tells me, hey, maybe we should dig into attachment and see if that's where this is coming from. Or is it, is there something else going on? Are we taking care of our basic needs? I always check basic needs with my patients first. You know, have you, are you eating regularly? How's your sleep? Are you showering? Have you been taking your medicine? If there is any medicine, have you seen your doctor recently? Like all these basic things, let's look at those first so that we can make sure that you're not acting out of that. And then we can track into other things, right? Is there some trauma in the past that maybe we need to dig into that we weren't aware of? Other past relationships that we haven't grieved? Like, anyways, that I just want you to dig into that because I think that's really a lot of the work that you're going to want to do with your next therapist. Because if this is written correctly and the work your work was not done with your therapist, there is nothing to say that you can't take where you were with this therapist and move on to another one. Yes, it fucking sucks and it takes some time and there is this transitional period, but sign the release so your old therapist that is resigning can talk to your new therapist and it will be smooth. It, it's still a little rough for us because we have to get to know someone else, but give yourself that opportunity, okay? It's, your work wasn't done. Let's give you an opportunity to finish it, Okay. And saying that it can only be done with that therapist just is not true. I know it can feel like it, but I'm here to tell you that's not the truth. And so um, tips. Tips are bringing this up in therapy and, and be curious about what's really the deeper issue. Your therapist might have some insight into that. Also know that it's okay to feel angry, sad, mad, and to talk about it with your therapist, to be mad at her. I can't tell you how many of my patients over the years when I've tried to refer them to higher levels of care get mad at me. And that's okay. That's more information. It's helpful. It's a safe place to get angry and to talk about it, okay? And then one thing that I would encourage you to do on your own is to go home and to journal about all the stuff you've worked through with your therapist. If you want to do it with them in session, they might have more insight and can read you back like notes from your first session. You can be like, oh my God, I don't even remember that person. And that can be really helpful for us to be reminded of how far we've come. And then I think it also helps motivate us for how far we can get with our next therapist. So those are just some of the things. I also have a whole video about, uh, I think it's like five things to do when ending therapy. Check that out and see if that helps as well. Um, but grief, it's complicated. It usually triggers a lot of other things. We have to be, you know, caring and curious about it. And 
for me, grief is help. It, the most helpful thing for grief is making time for it. Meaning set your timer on your phone for 10, 20 minutes and just let yourself cry or scream about it, journal about it, feel overwhelmed by it. Um, we don't want to take over our lives, which is why I've set the timer. I know it sounds weird, but it, we can actually, it can be helpful. Um, if you're able, when you feel it coming on, set that timer and let yourself, you know, do it then and then swing back into your regular life. But making space for that will allow you to process it. And I think talking all of that through and kind of figuring out where it comes from and, and expressing your upset will be what gives you closure. Okay. Let's move on to question number eight. And that question is, hey, Katie, I've been suffering from burnout for four months. Two months ago, I, I suddenly started getting anxiety. That happens when it's untreated, leads to depression, anxiety. I don't leave the house besides for my doctor's and psychologist appointments. Going for a walk, talking to strangers, doing a small errand, etc. is way too much stress for me. So I avoid, I avoid them at all costs. Is this normal? Are burnout and anxiety related? Yes. I'm having a hard time understanding why this is happening to me since I've never experienced this before. Last week, I even had a panic attack for the first time in my life. And I feel like I need an explanation in order to understand and be able to cope. My psychologist doesn't think it's necessary to investigate where it's coming from. Oh, weird. But I really need this. I would need it too. We've talked about this several times, but it keeps me unsatisfied. I'm starting to think that I'm making everything up in my head. Is this possible? What do you think? And can you help me clarify where the anxiety is coming from? I'm sorry for my English. It's not my native language. Lots of loves from Belgium. Your English is impeccable and beautiful. And so are you. Now let's get into this. So burnout occurs when the effort that we put in to something for life, right? Work, whatever, isn't at least commensurate, meaning equal with the reward that we get. Now the reward people always think is, oh, it's money. No, it, the reward could be free time. The reward could be a fulfillment. Like you've helped somebody, like you touched somebody's life and we're able to make it better. Reward can be a lot of different things. So it can help for us to figure out what our reward is in our work situation, because that can give us a lot of information and be really helpful. So that's one of my first tips. Find out what your reward is. What makes you feel good? It could be financial. Financial is always a part of it. Like we know through research that having enough money to pay your bills and take a vacation does make your mood and your mental health that much better. But at a certain point, I want to say it's like if we're able to save a little and go on vacation, then once we reach a certain let's I don't even know what there's no like money amount, but they were saying once people like are able to pay for basic things, there's no more reward from that. So like that that's kind of the tricky part for people is they think, oh, if I make more money, I'll even be more happy. And that, that actually isn't true. There's, it's like you plateau. And actually at a certain point, I forget, I don't know if it was like a million dollars or something, but then it actually can make things harder. And I would assume that's kind of the, the like rap song, more money, more problems, but it's more like more money, maybe more responsibility, right? And then we have to find another way to to get rewarded, another fulfillment. So consider what what fulfills you, what's rewarding to you. And when burnout goes untreated, it can lead to depression and anxiety. It's very, very common. And the reason for that is that our our brain, when we are, sorry, got pod nose, got a little itchy, schnoz rooney there. But the, um, the pathways in our brain need constant repair and constant work. But if we're not giving ourselves our brains breaks, the brain, our brain needs breaks every day. And we need to get like at least seven and a half hours of sleep for it to clean itself. And there's all these things that have to happen so that we can function, right? Well, if burnout continues to occur, certain parts of our brain enlarge and 
shrink and thin. So part of a huge part of our brain that enlarges is like our amygdala and parts of our limbic system. Now, if you don't know that that whole system in our brain, especially our amygdala, it's like the king of, of it is like our fight flight response or our stress response. And it gets enlarged, meaning that it's more easily triggered and it fires more rapidly with more intensity. So we are more apt to lash out, act irritable. Irritability is a huge component of burnout, feel super anxious and potentially depressed. And there's other parts like parts of our prefrontal cortex thin, meaning that the part of our brain that is uh, responsible for organized thought, planning, preparation, even speech. Um, if you ever feel really burnt out, I've been in this situation too off and on. Like right now, you'll probably see and maybe, you know, over the, especially over the next few weeks, because Sean are about to go on vacation, I'm needing a vacation. So you might notice that I can't find words when I'm speaking with you as much because that part of my brain is just like, can't quite get it because it's burnt. And so if you find those things happening, it's just a symptom of it. Um, and so in this case, because you've been burnt out for a long time, like I know four months, people might think like, well, I've been burned out for years. Either way, it's no good. Burnout for more than at all is no good. But even I'll say burnout for more than like, let's say a couple weeks is really bad and it can lead to these things. And so um, it is normal. And I have a whole bunch of videos. I did a whole series actually with YouTube. Sorry, my nose is really itching. With YouTube back in 2018, I believe, about burnout and healing from it. And the best ways we heal is truly take a break first. I know people are like, but I can't, but I, there's always a way to take a break. If you have to take sick days, you fucking take those sick days because you get paid for those. Take those. It's you're really, You are actually sick. Take some breaks. Uh, plan a vacation. Even if your vacation like, I can't afford it. Can you afford to stay home? Stay home. Please watch some random television. So taking breaks is key. Then uh, taking care of our basic needs, make sure we're sleeping enough, eating enough, drinking enough water, showering, taking our medication. Have you gone to the doctor and got checked out? We always want to also rule out any other, what we would call like organic causes, meaning like, is your um, potassium or electrolytes low? That can make us feel really panicked, make our heart beat oddly. Or is our iron low? That can make us exhausted. Like there's a lot of things, symptoms we can feel physically that do have a physical reason as well as mental. So get that stuff checked out. Take care of yourself. That is good. And then when we move forward, when we're done with our breaks and we're done with like our basic needs are up and running and we're doing that, we need to have a better balance because we cannot go back to exactly the same scenario as we were in or we'll end up in the same scenario that we're in. And so finding ways to better balance, does that mean that if you work on a weekend, you take off a day in the weekday? I would say so. What are those things that make you feel fulfilled or a breath in? Like some time with some of my friends is like, ah, it's just what I needed. And so I need to make time for them. I need to, I know COVID makes some things difficult, but are there ways, can you go to a park and walk around? Or if you're in a place or feel safe enough, can you go out to dinner? Like, let's make time for those people. Can you have someone over and order in? Like we need that in our life. And so I'd encourage you to make space and time for that. And that will really help. And so yeah. Your anxiety is stemming from your untreated burnout because that's your brain. Your brain's just in fight flight a lot. It's in its stress response. And I do have a ton of videos on this. So I have, I think 14 or 15 videos we ended up creating all about burnout and you can search them on my channel. Um, I just do Katie Morton burnout series. It's actually a whole playlist. So once you find one, 
you can find all of them and just scroll through and maybe watch bits and pieces of things that are helpful. I interview everybody from like a dietitian to one of my friends who uh, unfortunately had just a really her life maxed her out for a little bit. Her sister was really sick and um, you know, she just had a baby and everything was just really overwhelming and she would like black out. And, um, and I talked to a psychiatrist and I talked to, um, some of my friends like Shane who doesn't sleep very well and how that affects his life. Like we get into all sorts of things, um, exercise and how helpful that can be. Um, so yeah. So anyways, check those videos out. Know that yes, your anxiety is stemming from your burnout and we need to figure out a way to resolve that. And you can, you can heal. Don't fret. Okay. Okay. Let's move on. Question number nine says, Katie, I struggled to show or express my feelings. I know this arises from childhood conditioning and from how I've learned to protect myself from the traumas I've experienced over the years as a child, adolescent and adult, including emotional, physical and sexual assault, bereavement, family estrangement and suffering workplace bullying, as well as from coping with such events as my house as being flooded twice and two car accidents. Whew, that's a lot. I understand the issues intellectually, but I can't make the move to emotional and feeling ways. Having stopped that for so many years, it's very common. My therapist tells me to be more open to vulnerability. How? How do I feel? How do I let go of being the way that I have been? This is very tricky. And I will be honest with you when I say it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be hard, but it's not all or nothing. Okay? So I like to start by first printing out or just having it bookmarked because some I know people don't print things anymore. But if you can print out the feelings wheel, go to feelings wheel, I think it's just feelingswheel.com. Let me double check that. But um, just to make sure it is correct. Yes, feelingswheel.com. That's F-E-E-L-I-N-G-S-W-H-E-E-L.com. It's beautiful. I love it. It's colorful. And start in the center. So the way the feelings wheel really works, and I haven't talked as much about this because you can use it in any way that it benefits you. Okay. But in the feelings wheel, a lot of the, the center ones, which have bigger slices, it looks like of this pie are the ones that we can sometimes identify earlier on. So you can pick, you know, two from there and then, you know, four as you move out and then eight, or you can do one, two, three, you know, you can kind of like, however you want to grow it, um, and I meant one, two, four, you're always doubling four, eight. Um, as you move out ring by ring on the feelings wheel, that's technically how you're supposed to use them. But I think just getting that feelings wheel out and each day for one week, I want you to try to come up with one, even if it's in the center pie. Those are the easier ones for us sometimes to identify because they're not as descriptive. It's kind of like generally I feel bad or I feel good. And that's okay. We have to start where we're at. We don't even know how we feel. So we can't be like, I feel very irritated. And the reason I feel, we don't even know that. Let, you know, it's okay. We're learning. It's like a new muscle that you have not worked out maybe ever because it wasn't okay, right? It's like every time you try to lift that weight, your family like slapped that weight out of your hand and was like, uh-uh, we don't do that, right? So start there and try to come up with, you know, one a week, one feeling word each day for a week see how that goes. If that becomes kind of easy, simple, we're able to do it. We're like, oh, bad. Even if it's bad all the time, I would encourage you to try to come up with a different, at least a different word, not every day, but let's say at least three different feelings words through the week. Okay. So every other day, roughly. 
if that works, then I want you to bridge out. Then I don't want you using those center words anymore. I want you to move out a ring and I want you to come up with two each day for a week. Okay, I'm going to get you up to each week. We're going to try this and, and you move on as you can. If, if one week is not enough and it's still hard, then give yourself two weeks of doing the one word thing. But move on until you get up to three feelings words, three to five a day. And here's the next step. Then I want you to start writing a little sentence about how that feeling displays itself for you or how is it experienced by you meaning if my feelings word is irritated then if I was going to explain how how I feel about it or how it's experienced by me I would say something like my thoughts are racing my body feels tense and everything makes me mad right okay so that'd be how I describe it without using that feelings word so write a different description not using the word irritated so if you feel bad how does that feel I feel lethargic and uh, angry and all I want to do is go to bed. You know, those are ways that we can describe it. And that this is going to be difficult. Again, try to do just one. So you now you're doing three to five a day. Pick one of those and try to write a sentence about it each day. And we're just going to build up like that. That's just getting you to a place where you're able to kind of better identify, better recognize, better understand what is even going on because we're just so disconnected. And it's okay to take your time. It's okay for this to be difficult. It's okay. It, there's no judgment. This is very common, by the way. Most people don't know what the hell they're feeling. We're just so disconnected. It feels safer to be disconnected, right? Being attached to our emotions means that we can feel everything and ugh, that can be a lot, right? So be patient, give yourself the time you need and move through it that way. And then we'll get to a point where this is easier. So maybe a few months down the lane, you're like, I can do this easily. I can write my I can write my sentences and I can identify five and I can even do five sentences if I wanted. Then I think I would take it a step further and I would encourage you when you start to feel some kind of overwhelm or just bad, just agitated, something's off. I want you to stop. I want you to close your eyes if you can in a, like a safe space, like you're at home and no one's going to bug you. You can like pop into the bathroom, shut and lock the door sit on the toilet for a second, close your eyes, breathe and think to yourself, what is it I'm feeling right now? Where is this coming from? Where am I feeling this in my body? Is there something I can do to make this better in the moment or tomorrow or in the next couple of days? Ask yourself some basic questions about it. Check in because so often we white knuckle through these bad situations where we feel like shit and then we wonder why we lash out at our children or our spouse or a friend or family, somebody, right? We lash out at somebody because we feel terrible and we're like, I don't even know why I'm acting like this. You do. We just have not asked ourselves the questions. We haven't checked in. And so that's kind of like obviously down the line long term, but hopefully that gets you started um, because we can't express or show anything if we don't know what they are. And I think that's really, that's really where we're at. So you can get better at expressing it in therapy and feeling a little bit better. Okay. I hope that helps. Final question. Question number 10 says, hola, Katie. Hola. What do you think are the best five questions to ask a therapist before starting treatment with them? What a great question. Now, I'll try to keep it to five, but no promises. Now, number one, my first question that I always ask is how much does it cost? Now, I know in other situations, other um, you know countries and people who have different types of care, they might be like, that doesn't matter. It's always free. But for a lot of us, 
even in Canada, like my sister-in-law, um, her therapy is private because otherwise she has to wait like two years to see someone. And so she had to find out how much it costs. So how much does it cost? And that's like, that question is all inclusive in my mind of like, um, how many sessions can I get? What's my coverage like? It's all of that because we don't want to enter into anything with any therapist if we can't afford it. Like, like I said, I, I saw Josie, this one therapist in Santa Monica who I loved. I saw her twice. And I just couldn't afford it. And so it wasn't really beneficial to me. So it was honestly a waste of like $300, right? So much money. So that, ask about that. Ask what they specialize in and follow up by asking what trainings they've done to give them that specialization. Too often, I'll see therapists on and I think it, it's probably just our system that's kind of broken, but I'll see therapists advertising. And it'll say like that they specialize in like 10 different things. And I'm like, that's impossible. No offense to anybody. But like I specialize in eating disorders and self-injury work. That's it. Now, yes, that comes along with, I also could say I specialize in like borderline personality disorder, but the, you know, that that's really it. I, I can't imagine also trying to learn to specialize in like addiction and depression and anxiety. It's a lot. I can treat it. The list could be, I can treat those things. But when someone asks me what my specializations are, it's a very small list. And so ask them, what do you treat? What do you specialize in? What trainings have you had? Let's say my issues, anxiety, like what trainings have you had around OCD or other anxiety disorders? If they're like, huh, uh, uh, maybe none, it might not be the best fit. It's okay. You need to know you're going to pay this person who is a professional for their professional, you know, take on things. And they're, you know, you wouldn't want to see a cardiologist who never studied hearts. <laughs> I know that's, that's a terrible example, but you know what I mean? We want to make sure that they're able to help us. They're very well trained and have recent training. Okay. So we ask about that. So that's number two. Number three, I think, is more about asking yourself is do, do I like this person? Does the, the place around me feel comfortable? Do, is their office easy for me to get to and park? And do I feel okay sitting here? Like, I know that these are questions to ask another therapist, but other than like cost and their specializations, if you could ask about confidentiality, they're supposed to tell you. It's part of usually almost all of our paperwork. I mean, nobody reads the paperwork. I usually talk like talk to my patients up through the paperwork because I know they didn't read it. Um, but I don't think that's as important as like, do you feel comfortable? Is this office easy to get to? Or, you know, do I like them? Do I feel like they're on my side listening to me? Um, so that would be my third. And I think, you know, another important thing. And then actually, I guess the fourth to ask the therapist would be, you know, um, do they put together a treatment plan so we can work towards our goals? Because like I was talking about earlier, every therapy needs to work towards goals. How you get there is up to your therapist and you and the, what they what style of therapy they do. But ask them about that because sometimes it feels like a lot of you will be in therapy forever and you'd be like, I don't even know what we're working on. I don't even know what we're talking about. I don't want that to happen anymore. Ask them, you know, what, how, how we go about this, how to put a treatment plan together, you know, you want to work towards your goals, and you want to make sure that you're, you know, getting the most out of therapy, ask about that, ask how they do that, ask if you can do it right now, right? I think that that's really key, um, and really important. And I guess, and it's tricky, what would be the fifth, what would be the, the most another vital one? I guess, uh, 
I mean, I, I will put in confidentiality here only because I think it's important for all of us, especially if we're nervous about like past trauma and abuse, or if we, you know, maybe we're sexually assaulted, or maybe, you know, we have children or, you know, we need to know, it's important to know what, what they're going to tell and why and ask them directly about it. Sure, it might be in the paperwork, but it's important for them to be able to tell you about you know, 5150s and when those have to be enacted and what is the duty to warn or what we call the Tarasoff Act and like when, when do they have to tell someone about those things or when would they call CPS, Child Protective Services? If we have children, those that's something we should know. And I know it seems kind of like, like not that helpful, but it's very helpful because you just don't know what will come up for you. And if you're going to talk, I've heard from a ton of you over the years, you were afraid to talk through a full trauma because you didn't want them to report it and you didn't know that they didn't actually have to because you're an adult, you know? And it's just important for us to know the laws and the rules and to hear it from our therapist or psychologist or whoever we're seeing to make sure that we know what, what's safe and what we can share so that we feel comfortable going in, you know? I honestly, that's one of the a great random perk of being a therapist is I don't worry about being in therapy and sharing anything because I know that I hold the confidence and I know how that works, that my confidentiality is is my own. Um, and I think a lot of us stress about that. So let them explain it to you and ask questions until you feel you feel good. And yeah, I guess I guess that's it. Um, and if you're under 18, ask what they're going to share with your parents. That's important to know again, so that we feel free to share what we need to share. There's, there are a lot of like signs and things that I would want you to look out for. Like a therapist should not be talking about themselves for very long. Sure. They can share things here and there as it benefits you, but they shouldn't just be sharing about themselves. That's not, it's not their therapy session. It's yours. You know, um, you should never feel like they invalidate you or your experience. They shouldn't be like, Oh, you just do that. Ugh, I have patients who are so much worse. Like, are you kidding me? No, that's not okay. Um, you know, they should help give you language to how you feel like, so you can put some words to what's going on. That's really helpful. Um, you should feel like they're on your side rooting for you. You should feel like you like them at least enough to get to know them in the therapy sense. Um, yeah. So that, that's really it. I mean, there's, there's so many other things that we could get into, but those are the most important. And I think those are the best questions to ask and the best questions. Like I know I had one that was like, you have to ask yourself, but that's really important. So I want you to check in. Great questions as always. Thank you so much for sending them in. And I didn't say this at the top of the podcast, but if you're wondering where these come from, it's over on my YouTube channel called Opinions That Don't Matter because that's the name of the podcast that I do with my husband, Sean. And it's on the community tab every Saturday, no, Sunday morning. I ask for your questions. You can place them there and we we break them up. The first eight are the ones that get the most thumbs up and the last two, sometimes three, are just random ones that I scroll and just select um, because I want you all to get an opportunity to get your questions answered. I hope you have a wonderful week. Do something nice for yourself. We spoke, we spoke about burnout and trauma today. Are there things that you're doing to take care of yourself? Do you need to go put your feet in the water somewhere, even if it's in your own tub? Do you need to go for a walk? Do we need to talk to someone that we love and hear from someone we care about? Maybe we do. Maybe we should make time for that. Um, now more than ever, I know people are talking about things opening up and feeling back to normal, but I, we all went through a trauma and I really think we need to offer ourselves some loving care right now as we kind of figure out how do we open up and do this again and how do we engage and and how do we process all that we've been through and so give yourself some time be nice to yourself you know you're you deserve it 
Trust me, you do deserve it. Okay, have a wonderful week and I will see you next time. Bye. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.